Well, good evening again. Uh, my apologies, firstly, that you had to hear me sing. My God is so big. This is what happens when you don't have editorial control over a video. But um, anyway, um, I'll get the Viddlers back someday. I don't know. Uh, but uh, we're starting this series, as you heard from Joel, um, kick off with this passage in Luke 6. Uh, so let me pray for us that God will help us as we come uh, to start this series and think hard together uh, about what it is that Jesus is uh, calling on his followers to do. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, that we can gather freely tonight. Uh, we thank you for your word to us. Help us not to take it for granted, but to uh, see, it in your, see in it your clear instructions for salvation in your Son and how to respond in this life in uh, obedience and submission to his lordship. Uh, Lord, as we see... Um, him acting uh, tonight in various contexts. We pray that you would challenge us afresh in terms of our response to him, that you'd encourage us where needed as well, that we might respond all the more uh, in light of your grace to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So sometimes leaders act in unexpected ways. When they come to power, they do things that people are not anticipating. Uh, one example of this uh, was back in the 1990s, the famous uh, first black South African president, Nelson Mandela. Uh, he was uh, brought to power through the elections, the momentous elections, in April of 1994. But on the eve of those elections, he appeared in a black township called Soweto to uh, address this large rally of people from the town. Indeed, there was this huge uh, soccer stadium on the edge of the town, and people had poured out from the town all day. And such a dry area, the dust was just like filling the skyline. You could hardly see what was happening. All the people poured out to this stadium that they might hear Mandela speak. But as they came, they carried clubs, they carried machetes, they carried knives and axes. Um, not that they were in any fear of others coming, but it was kind of the mindset of the town and the violence that was there at the time. But they came to celebrate, really, and as they came through into the stadium, there was heavy security. They were supposed to remove all these weapons. Um, and the great fear on the eve of the election was that Mandela might be assassinated. But he showed up uh, in no concern of the environment and what might unfold. And there he was on the podium. And as soon as he took his place, um, applause erupted throughout the stadium. And people got to see this one that they were placing their hope in. Well, soon after, as he came to the podium, a gunfire broke out in the stadium to the dismay of all the security guards that thought they'd removed it. Despite all their efforts, people had smuggled in guns. Mandela didn't flinch at all because he knew that the people there uh, were on his side and were sort of, these were expressions of their joy and they were firing bullets into the air. But that was scary for some of the others that were there, including foreign reporters. Well, he eventually calmed the crowd, got them to listen. And as he spoke his first words, people anticipated that he would really pump up the mob and rally them about this exciting moment that was upon them, that uh, black people within the nation would have the chance to vote and see somebody of their colour come to power. But he didn't do that. And his first words to the crowd was to rebuke the people that had fired the guns. He said to them, you have let yourselves down today. You have let down the crowd here. You have let me down. And stunned silence filled the stadium. 
as he spoke. And he then lectured the people for 20 minutes on how they should be concerned for others who had suffered under apartheid in the years that were past. He talked about the Indian population within the nation and how they had suffered greatly. There was not one person of Indian background in the crowd that day. They were all black South Africans. But he wanted them to focus on others who they had no concern about, to be thinking about the needs of others in the nation. He said to them, the problems that we have seen even as we've gathered here today have to end. We have to take responsibility in a responsible way. Well, after 20 minutes of lecturing them, there was no um, big farewells. There was no lap of honor around the stadium. He just left. And the stunned crowd silently walked back to the township. He could have said anything to the crowd that day. He could have ordered them to go out of the stadium and they would have done it in a heartbeat. But he wasn't interested in riding that wave of popularity. He did what was unexpected. He wanted to help them to think about the future and others who they had not considered. You know, as we start our series on Luke 6 to 9 this evening, we're going to see, as our title suggests, that Jesus is the unexpected king. He's coming into his power, he is going to reign, but he's not going to act in a way that the people are expecting. And that's why, as we saw last year in Luke 1 to 5, that even the beginnings of his story are just not what people would predict. Aren't kings born in palaces? Don't they have important people around them? And yet we saw this humble birth in a manger, unknown area, no acclaim except from God's angels. And as we get to the end of the section we're going to be looking at over these next few months, we're going to see Jesus say to his followers, Look, if you join my side, it's not going to be all beer and Skittles. We're not come so that I just give you everything you want and prosper. What you need to do is realize that you need to take up your cross and follow me. You ought to lay down your life. Your old life has ended and it's nothing except to be a disciple, to come behind me, your suffering servant. This is not an expected message. It's not what people thought about a king the king that would come. Our big question this evening is this as a result. Why is Jesus the unexpected king in this passage in particular tonight in Luke 6? Why is Jesus the unexpected king? Well, the first answer to that question, as we look at the first few verses, is because he reinterprets the law with grace. He reinterprets God's law through grace. Have a look again at verse 1. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields and his disciples began to pick up some ears of corn, rub them in their hands and eat the grain. And Some of the Pharisees asked, Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, taking the consecrated bread. He ate what is lawful only for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Well, as we take in what is a stunning opening, opening section to Luke 6, we need to see the context in verse 1. The reference here to ears of corn or heads of grain establishes the time as harvest time. It's summer, probably June in Israel. 
But we learn of this serious accusation. It seems like Jesus and his disciples are walking through the field. His disciples pick some heads of grain. It seems a somewhat minor, unimportant thing even to note from our viewpoint today. But immediately they are accused by the Pharisees. They were the religious leaders, the religious enforcers of the nation. And they had added other codes and regulations on top of God's law that had been laid down in the Old Testament. And they were about policing it. But see, their argument from their viewpoint sprung from God's word. They were very determined to fulfill the fourth of the Ten Commandments about keeping the Sabbath. Have a look with me. Exodus 20, verses 8 to 10. Here is the Sabbath law. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. See, this is what was driving the Pharisees. And in their mind, they thought in order not to break the law about the Sabbath and the Ten Commandments, you need to add other regulations to help the people. And so they devised 39 things that you could not do on the Sabbath that they considered work. And one of those things was reaping or harvesting. And that included, in their mind, picking grain. And so for the Pharisees, you see, the disciples were sinning. They had gone out and deliberately flouted what was the custom of the people. There they are picking grain. And so they questioned Jesus about it. I think, again, it's hard for us to grasp how serious the Jews were about their Sabbath keeping. But with good reason, uh, Exodus does point out later in Exodus 31 that to disobey God's laws, including the Sabbath, could be the penalty of death. And so I don't think they're deliberately just being nitpicky with Jesus because they don't like him and his disciples. They really believe that his disciples are sinning. Well, how does Jesus respond? Well, verses 4 and 5, um, Christ replies to this accusation. He points to the example of King David. King David, who was on a great pedestal in terms of being the greatest king of the nation. It would have been a well-known story to the Pharisees who knew their Old Testaments well. It comes from 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 to 9. But what the Pharisees had failed to grasp about that particular scenario was the spiritual lesson that Jesus was now going to teach them. And really, boiled down, it is that human need takes precedence over ceremonial technicalities. See, it's not just that Jesus thought the Pharisees were being a bit too rigorous. Now, they're getting a little bit too carried away with the Sabbath here. Rather, Jesus thinks they have the wrong idea of the Sabbath altogether. Now, the hunger of Jesus' disciples is paralleled with the hunger of King David's men. And by doing this, he's also drawing a comparison between King David and himself. I mean, Jesus is the greater son of David, far greater. But such a comparison with David, um, that may have been hard enough, but it was nothing like the revolutionary statement in verse 5 that Jesus makes to these religious leaders of the nations. He announces, he asserts that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Well, the Pharisees would have been in shock. Now, the title Son of Man is drawn from Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. The Son of Man is the one who is ushered into the presence of God the Father, the Ancient of Days, who is given all power and authority. 
And Jesus is saying, I'm that one. I have the power, I have the authority to interpret the law, indeed the Sabbath law. Now the Pharisees, they didn't recognise this authority, so you can imagine them saying under their breath, Lord of the Sabbath, who does this guy think he is? But if they were worried at this point, matters get much worse in a couple of weeks following. Notice where things go in verses 6 and 7. On another Sabbath, he, that is Jesus, went into the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. So this time, it's not Jesus' disciples, it's Jesus himself. And Jesus has found one of the other 39 categories of work, and that is healing. They saw healing as work that was prohibited on the Sabbath. You couldn't heal anyone on the Sabbath, according to the Pharisees. They're wanting to spring a trap, as we see. They're watching him closely. But in verse 8, we learn that Jesus knows all about this. He's not thrown off by them doing this. He knows what game they're playing. He can read their minds. And so he steps straight into the trap because he wants to make a principle about the Sabbath really clear again. And he gets this man to stand up in front of everyone in the synagogue. And you can imagine all eyes trained on this man who probably wished he could dissolve into the floor. And he questions the Pharisees in front of everyone in the synagogue. And he says to them, so, what is right? And there he is. He's not on the back foot at all. But he does what he so often does. And he questions those who are accusing him. And what he's going to draw out is the ethical priority and teaching that he's already shown um, in, a, in the parallel passage in Mark 2. In Mark 2, uh, Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so Jesus tests them about their understanding of the Sabbath here. I ask you, he says, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? Well, Jesus has cornered them in one foul swoop. What are they going to say now? Say it's all right to do evil, it's all right to destroy? They can't say that. But what if they say, well, it's all right to do good, to save, to do whatever is necessary and helpful on the Sabbath? Well, if they do that, they're going to be approving of what Jesus is going to do now. If he's going to heal this guy, we can't approve that. So what do they do when they're cornered by Jesus? They do what they do so many times in the Gospels. They're stumped and so they're silent. They say nothing. It doesn't come out in this passage in Luke, but in the passage in Matthew, Jesus is angry. He's ropeable at this point. They would rather remain silent so that they can try and catch Jesus. They have no concern about this man and his healing. They have no concern about Jesus as God's son sent for them, the Messiah that they've been waiting for for centuries. And so they say nothing and they'll see what unfolds. Well, Jesus heals the man, of course. He demonstrates the truth of what he's trying to teach them. They claim to love the Lord. They claim to love his law. But they do not recognize the son. They have no compassion on God's people. And as Jesus heals the man, don't miss the irony in verse 11 that they go out to plot against Jesus. In Mark and Matthew's version of this, it says more literally they go out to plot to kill him. They do the very thing that Jesus has just offered in contrast. Jesus heals and saves and brings life. They go out to destroy. How can we kill this man? Now, 
despite Christians recognizing Jesus as Lord, if you're somebody that's trusted in Jesus as your Savior and Lord here tonight, you may have no problem at all about him saying he's Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord of everything. He's Lord. But we may struggle to think, what is he doing with the fourth commandment? How are we to think about the Sabbath here? And more broadly, Jesus' interpretation of the law. We know elsewhere in Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20, uh, that Jesus says he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. He says, I'm not throwing away the law. I fulfill the law. So what is he doing here? You know, at times, Jesus seems to raise the bar. Uh, So in Matthew 5 again, um, he says, anger is the same as murder. We like to differentiate the two, don't we, and say, well, I'm not like those others that are murderers and therefore feel better about our anger that Jesus says is equally bad before God. Sometimes to us it seems like he raises the bar. Other times it seems like he's reinterpreted the law because it's now found its fulfillment in Jesus and it's less important. And so in Mark chapter 7, Jesus abolishes the food laws. He says it doesn't matter what you eat or drink which was an amazing statement for a Jewish culture who was so hung up on following the food laws that had been given in the Old Testament law. And here when we come to Luke 6, Jesus is reinstating the true purpose of the Sabbath, the true purpose of the Sabbath. It was meant to enable us to rest and to give attention to our relationship with God. It wasn't supposed to be some great burden that was foisted on the people all the time, told what they can and can't do. No, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, Jesus would say. Or maybe it seems like a strange argument to you. But it's been a big thing even in Western Christian church culture for centuries. I remember back in 2005, I was taking a funeral when I was at Chatswood Baptist. And it was for a lady that was unconnected with our church. Um, She had grown up in a Christian family, had gone to church apparently in the past, but hadn't been to church for some time. And so in an effort to honour her wishes, they decided the children, they'd have a Christian funeral for her. None of the family were Christian. They didn't really want to do it almost. When I went and met with them to organise the funeral, they wanted to organise the shortest one in history. It was going to be 10 minutes long. They didn't want the Bible read. They didn't want to sing a hymn. They didn't even want to do the Lord's Prayer. They just wanted to get it over with and somehow stamp it as a Christian thing. And so I started digging and asking questions naturally as I heard all this and said, why are you so anti the Christian faith? Um, What is it that was in your own upbringing that makes you think this way. And they started telling me about the mother who had passed away. And they said, well, look, she grew up in this really strict Christian family. And the thing that they were most determined to do was to obey the Sabbath. And so what that meant throughout our mother's upbringing was that you had to stay home on a Sunday after you'd gone to church. The blinds needed to be drawn. You couldn't do anything apart from sleep. It wasn't just a restful day. It was a no fun day. You couldn't go outside and even play if you're a child. This was how it was. And they ranted on about the legalism of this church. Well, I've got to say to you that they were right. That's legalism. That is the antithesis of what God intended for the Sabbath law. The Sabbath law was made for humanity, not vice versa. It's meant to enable us to have rest for our bodies because we need it. It's meant to give us time that we might focus on God and truly worship him, that we might take a break from the busyness of life. It wasn't meant to be a noose around our necks that meant we cannot do anything. 
You know, as I shared this in the morning service, particularly at 8.30, people were sharing with me afterwards how they'd grown up under such regimes. Indeed, it was taught in a lot of churches in Australia right up until the 1970s that to be Christian, above all, was to be holy when it came to the Sabbath. And some of the ladies there were sharing how they used to get in trouble even if they were knitting or sewing, that was evil. And you had to undo all your work if you were caught doing that on the Sabbath. Let's not pretend that is legalism. That is not what is intended. And so Jesus calls the Pharisees on their legalism with regard to the Sabbath. You see, it was in John 1 verse 17 that John writes, The law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus is not anti-law, he is a fulfillment of the law and he points to the true intention of what God had done and his desire to serve and help people rather than to be a millstone around their neck. And that brings me to a second answer. Why is Jesus the unexpected king? Not only because he reinterprets the law through grace, but secondly, because he appoints learners as leaders. He appoints learners as leaders. Have a look again at verses 12 and 13. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. And he spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. When a new leader comes to power or a king comes to power, they, they bring in a new regime, don't they? Um, the old goes out and they appoint their friends or contacts into positions of power or rule within the nation, whatever it might be. And we see something of that here with Jesus. He has been rejecting the religious authorities already in Luke's gospel. We've just seen in regard to the Sabbath. He's effectively saying the Pharisees do not know what they're talking about when it comes to the Sabbath. He rejects their leadership of the people. And here he is appointing his own new leadership, 12 disciples that are following him appointed as apostles. Apostles means sent ones, those who will be sent out by Jesus following his death and resurrection and ascension to heaven. And of course, we see that as the gospel concludes and then the book of Acts begins. And the Holy Spirit's given and there's Peter at Pentecost in Acts 2, preaching to a huge crowd of people, um, explaining the gospel and 3,000 coming to faith. They were the apostles, the sent ones who would then go from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. A new regime, a new leadership group being brought in. The religious leaders that held sway in the country are being sidelined by Jesus and he's appointing his own leaders. But let's back up for a second here. Who are these new leaders? Who are this group of 12 that he's putting in such a position? I mean, aren't they a ragtag bunch of uneducated fishermen and despised tax collectors and so forth? Who are these people? These are not great heavyweights of the faith. These are learners. These are people with their old plates on. And let's not pretend when we see old plates when we're driving around, we're in fear. We think, you know, they're not the people we're encouraged to drive alongside. Sorry if you're an old plater. That's, um, I know there's some good ones out there. Um, but we, we have this sense, don't we, that L-platers, you don't put such people in charge of things. Sure, you know, maybe they can be trained for a while. How can the people with the L-plates be seen as the new leadership of the nation of Israel? Well, they're very much that because they're not just described as apostles. They're described as disciples. And the word disciple in the Greek literally means learner. 
follower, learner. You know, a disciple in the first century and for the centuries prior to that was somebody that followed around their master, sometimes for years on end, did all kinds of menial tasks, whatever they were asked to do, and in between having to do these things, then they would get some training and instruction, and hopefully over time they would be better educated by their teacher. This is what disciples are. They're absolutely learners. They weren't the armchair experts that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees were. The contrast, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were very aware of their position. They saw themselves as important. They were the ones that knew God's law. They would teach it with their expert knowledge and their application to life. So it says something very interesting, doesn't it, that Jesus appoints such people as his apostles. It seems that Christ is less interested in academic knowledge of the Old Testament laws, even less legalistic fervor to force them on the people with no appreciation of their intent. Jesus doesn't want leaders who claim to know God, who think they're experts, who sit in an ivory tower and tell the people what to do. He wants people that roll up their sleeves and are willing to follow him. He wants people that recognize his lordship. It's not about them, but them learning from him, who recognize that this is the one God in flesh who came to lead them, the awaited Messiah. And so again, Jesus has a habit of turning worldly wisdom on its head. How could such a group of men like the 12 disciples be the new leaders of the church? The only one amongst them of the apostles that had any real knowledge in that sense was the 13th apostle, Paul, wasn't it? Who himself had been a Pharisee, a teacher of the law. But you know, it's that same Apostle Paul who later writes in 1 Corinthians 1 these words. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, the disciples may have been a ragtag bunch, but they were wholehearted in their commitment to following Jesus. They were willing to be learners. They were willing to follow him come what may. And Jesus doesn't pretend it's going to be easy, as I mentioned earlier. But they would be the foundation of the new covenant church. Ephesians 2.20, the foundation is the apostles and the prophets with Christ as the cornerstone. When we get to Revelation 21 and all of time is brought together in the new heavens and earth there, what is the foundations of the new heavenly city coming down out of the clouds like a bride for Christ? Well, the foundation is the names of the 12 apostles. The challenge of discipleship was laid before them and they took it up. They were willing to be humble learners, to recognize who Christ was and to do what he said. Well, it's a challenge to us today, isn't it? I think it's an even bigger challenge than it was in the first century in the sense that we've got so much more to lose, it seems. We live in such a comfortable Western society where everything's laid on, where people are pursuing this life of ease from the cradle all the way to the grave. We want to run our own life and do things our way. We want to make the choice. I don't want to be told by anyone how it should be. And Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, I am your Lord and I will tell you how it's going to be. Follow me. Die to your old self. It's a confronting message. But anything short of that's fake. You know, Neil Postman in his classic book about American culture, which is called Amusing 
ourselves to death, said this about the Christian faith. I believe I'm not mistaken in saying that the Christian faith is serious and demanding. When it's presented as something else altogether, it is not the Christian faith. Well, I think he's spot on. Jesus doesn't call people to be armchair experts. He's not interested if you know every verse in the Bible and you can quote it in a second, but you don't live it. He wants people that are ready to follow him, come what may. And if it's not wholehearted discipleship that we're up for, then it's not Jesus that we're following. It's simply ourselves. And that brings me to a third and final answer to our question. Why is Jesus the unexpected king? Because he reinterprets the law through grace. Because he chooses learners as leaders. Because he offers rest, thirdly. He offers rest to his followers. I mean, what king or leader offers rest to his followers? Aren't they the one that wants to sit on the big red throne and they want everybody else to be their minions and run around for them and do all the hard work? But Jesus comes along and says, I am the servant. I will go to the cross for you so that you might have rest. Now, sure, there's a task in the meantime as we share this good news. But have a look at the words again from Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, that you may know well. As we consider this bigger idea, this principle of the Sabbath throughout the New Testament. You see, the New Testament is freed from its legalistic practices, but it's still a principle that's important. And we've got to get the under, understand the essence of it. Now, the word Sabbath, it doesn't mean Saturday. It doesn't mean Sunday. The word Sabbath means ceasing, resting. And with that in mind, have a look at Christ's words. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I think the first thing to grasp about the Sabbath is that firstly it points to the spiritual rest that we can have only through Jesus. He is the one that gives that rest it's the gospel that brings such freedom to us you know if you're weary and burdened with trying to earn your salvation by trying to be good enough for god where you're trying to follow some moral code where you're thinking if i can only just step up this ladder that someday i'll be acceptable before god and he'll let me into his heaven then please give up on those vain hopes the gospel is telling us over and over again that it is not about our performance. It's about what Jesus has done on the cross. He has paid it all. It's through grace that we're saved. It's not our works. And so the burden of trying to earn our way to be right with God has been removed. There is spiritual rest through faith in the Lord Jesus. And Christian freedom is such a wonderful blessing. It's ushered in by the kingdom of God that Christ installs. But did you notice in these verses, this Christian freedom is not a license to sin. It's not, I can do whatever I want. Notice there's actually a yoke to take on our shoulders. Now, the yoke is a description, a metaphor for subjection, that we're submitting to whoever has put us under this yoke. And so with Christ, we're subject to him as Lord. But we're told that his way is not burdensome, that he came to give us life and life abundantly. 
And so we freely follow his teaching in response to his grace and love to us. We know that he poured out his life for us on the cross, laid himself down for our sin that we might receive his forgiveness and so enter into the spiritual rest that he promises. But there's also physical rest, isn't there? I think secondly, the rest for our souls, which Jesus promises, also points forward. Indeed, the spiritual rest that he offers is only going to be consummated in heaven. And that is, too, where we will receive the physical rest that so often we long for, too. Now, the Sabbath was only ever a signpost. It was always pointing forward to something far greater. It wasn't an end in itself. Pointing forward to our eternal rest with God, spiritual and physical restoration. You know, when we see this healing of the man with the shriveled hand and every miracle we see like this in the New Testament, what we should be thinking and reminded of over and over again is here is a picture of the restoration that will come in heaven. That what we're seeing here is a glimpse of the perfection that will be given one day, that all the physical ailments will be taken away, that there will no longer be sin and therefore no mourning or crying or death. For the old order of things is gone and the new order has come. And so as we think about that spiritual restoration, we realize that it did exist in the beginning in the Garden of Eden, that Adam and Eve had it ever so briefly. But with the entry of sin, this world is marred, and there comes the unceasing work and the struggle against a marred creation and our decaying bodies. And remember, for many years after Adam and Eve, there was this hope of rest held out to the nation of Israel. And it was a physical, concrete place. It was the land of Canaan, the land of milk and honey. If we can get to this place, then finally we'll be relieved of our burdens. We won't have this wearisome toil in the desert, this wandering around endlessly, this waiting for this great hope to come. But of course, when they got to the promised land, as Joshua took them in, was it the rest that they found? Well, no, it didn't quite work out perfectly as they imagined. It was a place still on this earth, and so it was marred by sin, their sin, the sin of the surrounding nations. Milk and honey didn't last long. It was just a shadow again. It was pointing forward yet again to something greater that Jesus would win for us that would finally come to fruition in heaven. And that's why the writer to the Hebrews says this in chapter 4 from verse 8. Notice this, Hebrews 4. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Oh, it's a wonderful truth. And the description of what we're longing for and looking forward to comes to us in the book of Revelation, especially chapter 21 and 22 as we see this description of a world without the problems that we experience here on earth. You know, as we look forward to that great day, do you realize that each time you do stop and rest in your earthly night life, whether that's on a Sunday like today or maybe some other day where you actually have a day off and you physically rest, each time you take that, it's just a small taste. It's a microcosm of that eternal rest that is to come. It's meant to jog your mind of what we're looking forward to, of what we're going to. That this is not all there is. There is far greater things to come, reminding you of what you will have as God's child. Now, some of us are not so good at resting. Um, you know, there's a spectrum, isn't there? And some of us are more down the workaholic end. 
And, um, you know, rest is a hard thing to do and we suffer from that at time. I'll, I'll put my hand up for being down that end of the spectrum. So it's something we've got to work at. We need it physically, but we also need it so that we can actually focus on God, so that we can push away all the noises of this world and give attention to the one who we're living for, who we will go to be with, who we will focus on for eternity to serve and worship. So each time you stop, you should be thinking about heaven. A small example of the reality which is to come when you will cease from your earthly work, where you'll have the great joy of serving and worshipping the Lord. I think so often we get disappointed in this world. Uh, We're longing for Eden here. We keep looking for this moment of rest where things will go right. You know, if I just get to that point, then, you know, things will be better and I'll be able to enjoy life. It's that great illusion that's held off in the future for us that's called retirement, isn't it? Just ask any of the people here that are retirees. It's a complete illusion. They're often busier than they were when they were 20. It's a fake in that sense, but it's pointing forward to something better, something greater to come. So often we're let down by the opportunities in this world, by the earthly leaders that we think will bring prosperity and rest for the people that will bring the joy that people are so often longing for. And so I want to finish on this story. I want to return to the story of South Africa again. You may have seen in the news this week uh, that a new president has been elected and put in place, Cyril Ramaphosa. He was a good friend of Mandela, a confidant of his, who spent some time away in business and has come back into the political realm again. As we think back to 1994, there was this huge weight, an impossible weight that lay on Mandela's shoulders, as if him coming to power would change South Africa overnight, that somehow there'd be prosperity and unity in the country, that things would just enter into some golden age. Such a thing could never be fulfilled, and um, Cyril Ramaphosa is going to have his work cut out as he seeks to fulfill some of the hopes that people still have in the nation. You know, this week, South Africa's economy is faltering. Uh, Two of the leading credit rating agencies have downgraded the country's debt to junk status. Growth is paltry, corruption is rife, many of the state-run companies have been looted of their wealth, the official unemployment rate is 27%, and yet they think it's much higher than that because there are so many undocumented immigrants in the country. And so people say it's hard for many to overlook the fact that for many South Africans, life is no different than it was under apartheid pre-1994. Where is the El Dorado that was to come? But it's a false thing to hope in, isn't it? It's not just South Africa. I'm not picking on that country. Australia has its own problems. Every country does. We can't place our faith in our leaders or some hope that we will find rest or perfection in this life. It's a vain hope. God doesn't call us to put down roots here. He's helping us to look forward to see that what is important is yet to come. That it's in heaven where the true rest will come. That is the Eden that we seek, where we enter God's rest, where we share it with him. I don't know if you've noticed as you read the opening two chapters of the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2, as you read the story of creation, and as you move along, you see that there's a pattern in the language day after day. God creates different things each day, and then we get to the conclusion of the day, and there was morning and evening, the end of day one, the end of day two, the end of day three. When we get to day 7, Genesis 2, 1 to 3, where God rests, there is no conclusion to day 7. It doesn't end 
Day 7, if you like, in that spiritual sense, continues. Why is the Bible written like that? I want to argue because there God is opening for us a theme that's going to run right through Scripture, the theme of rest. It's an invitation for us to enter into God's rest, which is left open from the day seven of creation. We enter into God's rest through trust in his son. It's by faith in Jesus that we have forgiveness of sins and we have this hope of eternal rest with our maker. What was lost through the fall, you see, is regained at the cross and is consummated when we finally get to see our saviour face to face when we are with him and enjoy his rest for eternity. Will you pray with me? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we look around us in a world that can be so caught up in its busyness, that often we can find so wearisome as a result, that you have a greater and a better plan And it focuses on your unexpected king, the Lord Jesus. We thank you that you sent him not only to teach us how we might respond rightly to you, but to lay down his life that he might pay for our sin, win us back into a right relationship with you because of his perfect actions through his death and resurrection and not because of anything that we do. We thank you that as a result we can have this wonderful hope of salvation, but of salvation that will be consummated in heaven, where we will get to be with you, in whose company we'll delight. Help us to see that that is what we should long for, that that is the rest that you hold out for us. And Lord, we pray until that day that you might help us to acknowledge the need of this principle of a Sabbath, that we may indeed rest for our bodies, but also that we may focus on you, that we may be reminded of what is to come that we may not be lost, as it were, amongst the trees, but we may be able to stand back and see the forest, the wonderful future that we have through faith in your Son. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.